0: Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to this episode. It's an almanac episode for September. Normally I share these almanacs with just my Patreon subscribers, but since this one is an interview, and I'd like the information contained in it to be shared as widely as possible, I decided to share this one With all of my listeners. This episode focuses almost exclusively on the theme of apples, since this is apple season, and apples are sacred, not just because they provide a lot of food for us, even into the modern day, but because they stretch back so long in the folklore and mythic record, being an indigenous plant to Europe in almost every region. Apples are almost the archetypal fruit. In fact, it's hard to find out what folklore is about apples specifically because apple is so often used to stand in for any tree fruit, sometimes even nuts. In fact, you might notice in a number of Indo-European languages, apples are used in combination with other words to describe other fruits and vegetables, such as the earth apple in Dutch and the Cenos apple as well, the China apple for the orange. The earth apple is the potato. If you asked a child to draw an image of abundance, they would very likely draw you a picture of apples. Apples present themselves in great number at just this one time of year, traditionally, though we're accustomed to seeing them in the grocery store at all times. Apples would be a precious gift. And not only are they useful as food, but I think previously, though it's hard to say, apples would actually be more commonly used for cider. And fermented drinks play a huge ritual importance in Germanic tradition specifically, which is eventually where we get the ritual of wassailing the apple trees in early January in England, a tradition that still remains. Wassailing the apple trees is offering them a toast of cider and uh, singing, making loud noises in order to wake the trees and to bless them so that they provide plentiful fruit at this time of year. Apples hearken back to our hunter-gatherer days, and our connection to apple trees is very closely aligned with our connection to trees in general, and to groves, and to sacred groves. Trees are in fact central to Germanic mythology and folklore, and traditional spirituality, a fact that's been underrepresented in more recent years. This is a topic that I discuss at length with my interviewee on this episode, Joseph S. Hopkins. I ask him about apples in ancient Germanic culture in general. Joseph administers a website, mimisbrunner.info, that is instrumental in providing good, reliable, and neutral information on the internet about Germanic myth, Norse paganism, and ancient Germanic culture in general. He edits for RMN Newsletter, a peer-reviewed publication focused on folklore studies, philology, and archaeology based out of the University of Helsinki. He recently wrote an entry for the Kvasir Symbols Database, that's a subset of the mimisbronerv.info website, on the topic of apples. And I figured the time was perfectly ripe to have him speak on that subject on the podcast. So if you find what he's saying interesting, and you'd like some more info, and some really concrete citations for what he shares, I encourage you to visit memisbrunner.info and search the Kvasir Symbols Database. This is the last episode of Fair Folk before registration for my course, Abundance Paganism, closes. Abundance Paganism is a journey into European paganism from an abundance mindset. It's a way of stepping into trust in the divine and yourself, in the earth, and how to develop rituals that lead to more satisfaction from your spiritual practice and your connection to your ancestry. If you're listening to this at the end of August, please note that the registration for the course, Signing Up for Abundance Paganism, closes on Sunday, August 30th at 8 p.m., which if you're listening to this just after it came out is rather soon. I've linked in the show notes to the sales page so that you can look there for more information. And if you're curious about the course but you're not absolutely certain whether it's for you at this moment, feel free to send me an email at fairfolkcast@gmail.com at to ask me your question. You can also DM me on Instagram, danica.voice Here is my conversation with Joseph S. Hopkins on the topic of apples and their connections to sex, death, divinity, and fate in Norse mythology and Germanic folklore in general. Tell me about the gods and apples, (laughs) if you will.
1: (laughs) Sure. Yeah, so apples pop up uh, in several places over a wide span of time and a variety of sources uh, geographically distinct from one another in the ancient Germanic record. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the first semi-clear indications of the importance of the apple would be in the iconography surrounding the mothers, uh, Mm -hmm. which we know of from a series of um, archaeological finds around the Rhine in what is today Germany. Uh, These are largely, they appear to be shrines, right, and they depict uh, groups of women, usually trios, sometimes singular women, who appear to be goddesses or goddess-like figures. You know, the semantic parameters of what we consider to be a goddess really needs some unpacking. You know, we're using um, a lot of modern terms for really ancient concepts. Um, But anyway, this complex of mothers is not restricted to the ancient Germanic peoples, though. Uh, also, Celtic peoples, uh, some people to the south there as well, had this similar uh, iconof- iconography going on with similar objects, right? It, it's kind of unclear is exactly what's going on with some of this, but the general idea is that this focus on the mothers extends into the North Romanic corpus, the, the North Romanic body of text, as the uh, Dees, Valkyrie, and Norn complex, right? Hmm. So these sort of supernatural female figures associated with birth, death, and uh, an indigenous concept of fate, uh, which I generally just call weird, uh, which is the English, the Old English extension of it, and survives into modern English as the everyday word we use, weird, as well.
0: Hmm. And so um, you mentioned both, along with fate, you mentioned death and um, fertility at the same time. I'm really curious how um, my I, my reading is that both of those features or those sort of themes would be involved in apple folklore and, and mythology as well. I mean, at least that's my understanding. And I'm curious, like, what is the connection there between fertility and death and
1: these, these mothers? Sure, yeah. We see this uh, elsewhere, you know, throughout the record. You know, if you plant something... Uh, you're going to need for- fertilizer for it, right? Something has to die to produce that fertilizer, and there's a cycle there that is very easy to visualize. Now, whether or not that's the root of this co- complex of associations is pretty hard to say, but uh, it's not uncommon for there to be an association between um, sex, death, you know, reproduction. Uh, something has to die for something to live, and I think that's pretty broadly understood in the ancient record at least as far as i can tell and this sort of falls into the concept of just the lifespan you know you can witness people come and go in and out of life uh, so to speak Mm. and uh, that's certainly reflected you know we see life experiences reflected in the record this is ultimately you know These are human beings we're talking about here, of course. So Mm -hmm. Uh, not not that huge of a surprise. Of course, we are not as close to death as people would be in the past. You know, it's very rare that we would encounter um, a corpse. You know, we wouldn't be very hands on about burial. You know, these these ancient rituals uh, of life and death are really medically sanitized. Uh, We don't um, kill an animal that we consume anymore. It just magically appears wrapped in plastic. So those associations, you know, are pretty distinct uh, to us, but in the past, I think they would have been uh, pretty intermixed. And we see that, you know, with figures like Freya, who is associated with death, but also clearly has a, a an erotic element to her. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not—I wouldn't say it's unusual in any sense, um, but maybe peculiar to a modern, a modern reader.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I even sometimes want to like interrupt the connection between you know, feminine deities and, uh, fertility and even though, and fertility and death as an extension. But then I think like women's bodies are the fruiting bodies (laughs) of the like human reproductive cycle, much like, um, so connecting them to, to trees or apples is not a huge leap. perhaps. Right.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, in the ancient record, it's pretty commonly remarked by scholars who are noting the motif of the apple or Apple-like fruits, where the apple seems to be compared to, you know, human anatomy in a in a very uh, erotic manner, and um, not only in like ancient Greece, but you know, the Near East and so on. Um, it's pretty straightforward in that regard. Uh, in the ancient Germanic record, it's not usually noticed, though, that for example, in uh, Volsunga Saga, we see um, a pretty clear association between um, reproduction and the apple. This also broadly interconnects with how human beings are envisioned in the ancient Germanic record.
2: Mm.
1: You know, they're seen as trees, essentially, you know, both in um, the earliest mentions of the ancient Germanic peoples uh, that are at least verifiable. Uh, And then in the North Germanic record, we see an association very, very commonly between humankind and trees. And of Mm. course, in uh, Norse myth, we have just constant references to Yggdrasil, the central tree around which everything else exists and it is very much alive in the text uh, just as people are alive and the focus on trees is is just constant throughout the record
0: Hmm. that's wonderful i think it's really easy to forget as i've seen you remark as well like how central trees are to like human identity at least in europe and um and, and like food source, <laughs> you know, right. like, I think that probably comes from the the hunter gatherer, you know, times when trees are a direct source of most goods um, or at least treed areas.
1: Absolutely. And it's, you know, trees are easily the most uh, approachable material that humankind has to work with much more so than, say, stone or anything else they have access to. So pretty much anything that you would need to make uh, that didn't require advanced tools would be made from wood, right? And that, uh, unfortunately, doesn't make its way through the archaeological record rather than something that doesn't fire to grate uh, really rapidly, like, say, iron, things like that. So, you know, and also you, the North Germanic record is really strongly associated with Iceland, which is not known for its forests. Mm-hmm. You know, most of it was deforested, what was there uh, pretty early on. Uh, nonetheless, you know, the record, the North Germanic record just teems with references to trees. You know, some of this stuff does disappear in glossing and translations, right? Mm-hmm. Kennings that would uh, invoke a tree or. Um, various other poetic ways of referring to people's trees. Uh, Usually this stuff doesn't make it into translations. It usually gets snipped out, right? Mm -hmm. Because you would need to approach the Old Norse or at least take the indirect route. So when you see uh, the translation I did of the uh, so-called Niner's Charm, Mm
2: -hmm, I mm -hmm.
1: produced a a stylized translation, but I also produced a direct translation, which uh, is an approach that I think readers can get a lot more out of than rather than just a direct translation or a, just a stylized translation. You know, there's uh, a process of translation that's occurring there Mm -hmm. that readers completely miss out on otherwise.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And the nine herbs charm includes apples, doesn't it?
1: It does. It focuses uh, very heavily on apples. Uh, you know, and if you read the translation, there's a section that discusses exactly why it's uh, a bit inappropriate to refer to it as the nine herbs charm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the word that is being translated as herb is, is wart, uh, the same word that you would see in, uh, For example, St. John's wort, it's this uh, old plant word uh, from Old English that uh, refers pretty broadly to just plants in general, Uh, whereas an herb is a very specific term today. You know, it's a particular type of plant that obviously an apple tree would not fall within the parameters (laughs) of. (laughs) Oh, definitely not. As a as a total
0: aside, I was really thrilled when I was reading that translation to, to discover that plantain, which we have here in North America too, and is called by some indigenous people white man's footprint because it came from Europe yep. and it goes walk it's a long path, but um that it was called Waybread. I thought that was like <laughs> really wonderful. Interesting. Yeah, I mean you huh. know that aspect, but the, the yeah. I the fact that it like um was given a similar name in translation here as well.
1: Right. I think, you know, they do, they do grow up along the, the road, right? You know, my experience with uh, plantain is pretty limited personally, but uh, the reading that I did when producing that translation, it was pretty interesting. And I would love to dive more into that, uh, uh, that particular line of inquiry. I think it's uh, really fascinating, you know, I've done some writing on uh, botanical subjects in the focal record, like, um, these tree figures you know it's a big focus of mine Mm -hmm. uh figures such as the Hildemol in danish uh, the elder mother the elder tree mother is an interesting Mm -hmm. one Mm -hmm. and these sort of uh, personified trees as female entities uh that we see in the later um, folklore record in places like england uh, northern germany uh, denmark Uh, it seems to be very much in line with for example a figure such as ithun uh, from the old norse record
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, who
1: is uh, very strongly associated with apples, you know. And in the record, uh, she is depicted as a, a figure who has a basket of apples. Uh, there's no mention of where these apples are coming from, per se. Mm. Uh, however, we do see in later material uh, mention of uh, Idrissil, it seems, having fruits, which, you know, figures. This this depiction of the tree is an actual tree and things that would happen to an actual tree, like a squirrel crawling around on it, or uh, you know, uh, hearts gnawing on it. You know, these these symbolic elements uh, are very interesting to me. Like, for example, the Norns. You know, they're applying a sort of white mud yeah. to the base of the tree. I'm so fascinated
0: and, by that. I feel like people don't really like analyze why the things are happening in the tree or what they might represent. I think that's like we sort of just take it at face value for no reason at all. What do you What do you think yeah. about that? The white mud.
1: So you can actually see a similar process occurring with fruit trees to protect fruit trees from um, damage. Right,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, It's a sort of uh, white mud, sometimes lime mixture that is applied to the the stock of trees. And that seems to be what something comparable seems to be happening here, where they're taking this white mud from um, a particular well and applying it to the base of it to protect it. Right? Mm. So they're assisting this tree. Uh, what is particularly interesting to me about that stanza, though, is that it has a very close uh, parallel to a section of the Homeric Hymn to Hermes, where uh, there are these bee women who have a white powder on their face who uh, seem to be associated with fate. Right, mm. So there's a lot of parallels to this. Uh, although there is an immense distance in place and time here. Mm-hmm. And I have yet to see anyone comment on this. You know, these bee women, uh, it's a very interesting topic too, because we also see an association between bees and fate uh, mm-hmm. elsewhere in the record. And that stanza from Belospa uh, also seems to be connected to bees as well. Uh, the KSD entry for bees discusses this more in depth, uh, where we see just a general association here between the concept of bees and the norns uh, more broadly. For a swarm of bees is, a, is an old English poem that also seems to associate uh, Valkyries or Valkyrie-like figures with bees. Hmm. Uh, the whole the whole concept and why these norns would be connected with this tree and the notion that bees could be in trees as well. You know, there's an interesting complex of association with trees here and hmm. the things that live in trees and around trees and how these uh, entities are perceived. You know, I think a lot of these figures too are very much walled off and the, you know, natural processes that would be associated with these things are generally not uh, uh, given a good look at uh, by both experts and enthusiasts. You know, the notion of the tree and things being applied to it and things living in it, you know, these are complex subjects and uh, definitely worth further discussion and, and digging into. In fact, I think the whole, um, focal point of the tree has largely been overlooked and, and scholarship until pretty recently, mm-hmm. where we saw uh, a series of uh, uh, very high quality studies put out by scholars on this topic. And I think that's, a, again, receiving the subject it really deserves. Uh, I'm not sure why for such a long period, the central focus of the tree in the corpus <laughs> has been um, so strongly uh, de-emphasized or overlooked. And only now are we uh, receiving you know, the attention that the subject deserves once again. And uh, there's no shortage of material to draw from, from mm-hmm. not only the ancient record, but also the recent record on this. You know, for example, I mentioned the Hildemol. Um Exactly how long has this entity exist? Good question. Uh, I think it's been at least a few hundred years that we have been aware that folk belief in this entity has, uh, uh, folk belief in this entity has been around in Denmark. Right? Can you, can you expand are, on that, the huh? Hildemol? Yeah, Hildemol. So the first one of the Hild, uh it, it refers to uh, uh, the elder tree, actually. Oh yeah. Uh, and the in the second, yeah, uh, like the hieldeblomst in Danish is the elder flower, right? Which you can make, uh, you know, a, a sort of juice out of, uh, a concentrated juice. And the elder mother is associated with this tree. In fact, personifies this tree. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a bunch of records of, for example, um, Danish peasants. Uh, asking permission from the tree before doing things like breaking off parts of it. And there's a very similar complex beliefs uh, in English folklore. I mean, they clearly stem from a common background, but whatever that point of diffusion is or how recent it is, is unclear. Nonetheless, um, there was definitely in until very recently was a complex of beliefs around these uh, tree women uh, that we see in the record. And that's why you see, for example, when discussing uh, poorly attested uh, ancient Germanic goddesses, uh, discussion about, hey, do these uh, involve trees in some way? Because uh, it sure sounds like it. And there are a lot of similar entities in the later folklore record. So,
0: yeah. And that's work that you've been doing. I wanted to mention that, that you've been focusing on these these sort of poorly studied Norse goddesses, because because you can you can talk about that because they're understudied. <laughs> right
1: exactly yeah so when i was an undergraduate um i was actually finding so you know to me the best way to find something to dig into further is to really just uh, go over ground that's already been covered and plot out primary sources that you may think uh don't have anything else to offer right Mm -hmm. well the truth is uh as many scholars have noted uh, particularly female scholars over the years is that uh, female entities in the germanic record receive comparatively little attention when compared to their male counterparts, right? There is this uh, need uh, in scholarship that goes back some time to identify female entities in the record, particularly goddesses, as extensions of a single goddess. For some reason, mm-hmm. uh, this goes back uh, to great goddess theory. This idea that there was some sort of uh, quote unquote primitive matriarch focused uh, religion where the there was a single goddess, a great mm-hmm. goddess, and that there were just a sort of female focused monotheism that existed in the record
2: mm-hmm. would
1: perhaps be the best way to put it. There's really no evidence for something like this. You know, as far as we can tell, polytheism is very poly. There <laughs> are many deities mm-hmm. and uh, many of them are female, especially in the Germanic record. You know, there are just swarms of female deities everywhere. And in pop culture, unfortunately, this doesn't get represented. It doesn't get represented very well. You know, mm-hmm. uh, for example, Marvel Comics, you don't have like uh, a Freya. Uh, instead, you get a Frigg. And this owes to the fact that, you know, Marvel Comics stems from Wagner's depiction of the Norse deities. Ultimately, who uh, applied that approach to it, you know. Mm-hmm. So you don't, you know, this this female aspect, which is so strongly evident in the corpus, is uh, not at all reflected in modern popular culture, at least at this time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting that we haven't seen, you know, any sort of representation, for example, of like Ithun, right? Um, right. Which is actually, can you can you Tell that story, or what we know about about her and why she's connected with apples.
1: Sure, sure. So, uh, Eithun is a goddess that appears uh, solely in the North Germanic record, at least as it comes down to us, and uh, she is associated with apples. So, these apples apparently keep the gods. uh, I don't know if I want to say young, but there's they seem to like fade or or degenerate. Uh, Well, you know, and it's not even necessarily the apples. It seems to be just the presence of Eithun herself. Uh, a close uh, look at the record, you know, doesn't seem to reveal exactly if the gods are consuming apples or, you know, maybe are they drinking them? You know, they do have a taste for for alcohol, but uh, the narrative primarily centers around the abduction of Ifigun, right, by uh, a Jotun, who is, uh, you know, not necessarily a, uh, I wouldn't say there is some sort of duality going on here uh, between, you know, what would be called a, a chaos, struggle, and scholarship. Uh, Instead, it's, you know, it's a narrative about an abduction of something that another entity desires. And when that uh, entity or, you know, perhaps even a personified tree is taken away, Mm -hmm. the uh, gods start to degenerate and uh, they go after this uh, entity who has taken what they need and get it back, right? So this is not the only time we see something like this in the corpus. That's just a sort of general outline of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I could provide like retellings of these narratives, but, uh, you know, I don't want to buy, Oh well, this sort says this and this sort of says this and you know, this and that, mm-hmm. but it does appear to be pretty deeply rooted. You know, scholarship has responded to this in a variety of ways. Uh, it does seem like this particular narrative probably has some kind of, um, it definitely has an earlier basis than what we see in the North Germanic record. And it also seems to be shared among some other related peoples. It may perhaps go back to an earlier, uh, perhaps even proto-Indo-European narrative,
2: hmm. right?
1: So way, way back into the past. And that then raises the question of, you know, for how long have Indo-European peoples been familiar with apples? You That's know?
0: what I was going to ask.
1: <laughs> right? Have there always been right. apples you know, up there? <laughs> so the crab apple is native to uh to much of Europe, yes. And the crab apple is actually what we're talking about when we talk about some of the things in the record, right? Mm -hmm. When we can identify it anyway. Mm
2: -hmm. In the
1: um, Nine Herbs Charm, the apple that is referred to is explicitly referred to as the wood sour apple, Mm -hmm. right? So that implies pretty strongly that it is the crab apple. And the term crab, you know, comes around later uh, on the record and it refers to something that is kind of like disagreeable, perhaps right. sour. And then the question is, well, if the ancient Germanic peoples at the time were not aware of what would be the uh, what we know today just as the apple, which is the domestic apple. Mm-hmm. Right. Then why would they refer to it as the, you know, the sour apple? You know, what are they comparing it to? Right. And, you know, apples more broadly are are very interesting in that, you uh, when they're not grafted onto each other, uh, you get basically a, a different kind of apple every time another apple tree grows. You know, you're know, you not going to get um, the same apple tree twice that way. So you have to sort of, you have to graft an apple. Uh, so the whole topic of apple is very, very interesting. But the central question here is, when was the domestic apple uh, introduced to uh, Western and Northern Europe?
2: Mm-hmm. And we
1: don't really know this. You know, it's, it's unclear. So sometimes, in the record, they may be referring to a domestic. Uh, the domesticated apple, uh, mm-hmm. or they may be referring to the crab apple. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the crab apple was native, you know, it appears that it, it definitely had specific associations, but where and when were some of these other associations introduced, that's one of the most difficult things to, to handle, to, to deal with when you're talking about apples and ancient Germanic culture. It's like, well, right. what kind of apple are we talking about here? And, uh, uh, you don't get a lot of specifics about that. It's, you don't get a lot of recipes or, or anything too specific like that in the um, ancient Germanic record, for example, mm-hmm. unfor- unfortunately. Uh, how awesome would it be to have like, you know, some sort of uh, proto-Germanic recipe or something like that? Unfortunately, uh, the record doesn't offer us that.
0: <laughs> this is the Croatian folk song, "Oy Yabuko, ja addressing the green apple tree laden with its fruit by ensemble Laderis. word crab um when um when I was reading what you'd written about apples and crab apples I I thought of a line from the Chester mystery plays there's a play about Noah's flood and I I don't know what century it's from maybe the 16th century Um, and Noah's angry that his wife doesn't want to come on the boat Um, and Mm -hmm. I think is why he says um women be crabbed I Um, (laughs) he's complaining that women are always crabby and I wonder if this is one of the early um, occurrences of the word crabby or crab in crabbed in the, <laughs> in the, in the English. In, it's Middle English. But um, yeah, I'm curious about, so it's like grumpy apples? Yeah. <laughs> Unpleasant apples?
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess it kind of, uh, yeah, I think so. I think it's like a disagreeable, I think, um, encompasses the meanings. You know, the... The Oxford English Dictionary actually has a really great discussion about this, uh, about, you know, there's a little uncertainty about uh, exactly where this crab came from, you know, Um, there seems to be, there's an idea that it came from a comparison to the crustacean, right, the idea that, you know, the crab doesn't easily let go of its prey, like even when caught, you know, it'll just like clamp down to it. So it's very uh, cantankerous. It's very um, disagreeable. So that's one theory as to where this, this term crab, in this sense, comes from.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the other one would be some other derivation. You know, it, It's unclear uh, at the time. Nonetheless, I like the association between this very disagreeable creature and this uh, uh, pretty disagreeable uh, fruit, I don't know, if to a crab apple. Um, you know, when I grew up, we had a crab apple tree. Uh, and uh, I recall it was very, very sour, very acidic and also pretty bitter, you know, and not exactly a off the vine eating apple. But I understand there's a lot you can do with a crab apple that will remove a lot of uh, its crabbiness.
0: Mm -hmm. I wonder too, like, I think that our sense of what's an acceptable fruit is definitely shaped by the kinds of apples, specifically apples that we receive, like we think that fruit is supposed to be very sweet and not sour at all, when probably most of the fruit, aside from some berries um, that people were consuming in northern regions, at least, would be pretty sour, (laughs) I guess.
1: Yeah, well, when it comes to apples and crab apples, uh, you know, if they were eating crab apples, they certainly have a higher tolerance uh, than I do for them. (laughs) Uh, I can tell you that much. But, you know, I've also never been on a uh, tasting tour of various crab apples. But I do understand that uh, they can really vary as to how intense some of the disagreeability comes from.
0: So, you know, it's interesting, actually, now that I think about it, this um, this connection, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but that there is a a feminine connection to apples and apple trees, not exclusively, of course, but um, and and that one of the earliest references to the word crab would be was also in reference to a woman. (laughs) Um, Maybe there's some other origin that's like gendered that we're not quite. Well, maybe not. He wouldn't have to say women are crabby. It would be implied.
1: Maybe. Maybe. Your guess is as uh, good as mine on this one. You know, as to gendering things like taste and flavor, you know, I would, I would definitely caution anyone <laughs> from going that route. Uh, I would certainly uh, approach that with caution.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: you know, but also these senses and how we perceive senses. Uh, mm. There's been some really interesting works written about how we no longer approach things like scent. Uh, in a manner in which people in an earlier era would you know Mm -hmm. we devalue scent for example an industrialized society Uh, we definitely inhale a lot of smoke we're around a lot of things that don't smell particularly great Mm -hmm. and um, you know when we look at the ancient record the sensory experiences in the ancient germanic record anyway are not very well recorded but certainly people still had their senses uh, there is some discussion about one particular goddess uh, in the record about whether or not her name means pleasant scent. Uh, this is one of the papers uh, I wrote in the Goddesses Unknown uh, series, mm-hmm. and um, that seemed pretty unusual. You know, certain certain deities uh, in the record outside of the Germanic record do have some association with scent, mm-hmm. but you know, on the on the notion of taste, uh, on the notion of sweetness. I think it's also easy to forget as to how hard it was to get a hold of sweetness more broadly for people prior to the ready availability of sugar, for example, you know. And so uh, what did they associate sweetness with, you know, um, that's an interesting question. Uh, We don't get a whole lot of answers about this in the ancient Germanic record, but, you know, maybe the apple provides some sort of clue for this. There's definitely an association with eroticism with apples more broadly Mm -hmm. um, that we discussed a little earlier uh, today. And um, perhaps that is associated with just sweetness, you know, but it's easy to go too far with something like that. So um, I would definitely do some sort of comparative survey or something (laughs) before coming to any kind of conclusion about that. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, apples as a as a topic uh definitely have that strong uh sensual element to to them in the record
0: absolutely um I feel like I'm gonna go off topic if I'm thinking about senses and the sort of canon of senses and well right. I mean, we think about gods and and such as like in terms of their visibility or invisibility, and that seems to be like the main sense which we would expect to engage with them um and I don't know if that's like. I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be an expectation and that's why a lot of people like when they're talking Mm -hmm. about like you know pagan gods to me they'll say like well it feels a little ridiculous to believe in something um because they um like a god because they think of it in this very personified very like you know like marvel movies kind of way and when I don't think that maybe that would have been the way that people understood interaction especially when you think of a god as maybe a tree you know
1: right right yeah so you know, when you have something like ritual that usually does encompass uh, all sorts of sensory, sensory experiences, you know, you're gonna have um, a, a visual element. Oftentimes you're going to have uh, sound, you know, uh, scent, taste, all of those things can very readily be encompassed in, in ritual. And, you know, when you're doing, you're performing worship uh, historically, there is some sort of prescribed ritual for this. And usually it's going to involve at least some of those things, uh, at least as far as we can tell from the record. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have manuals to these things uh, from the ancient Germanic (laughs) record, but we can tell uh, here and there that, you know, there were things like processions. Um, We do know that uh, groves were central to uh, ancient Germanic religion and culture and also worldview. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know this was the case from the very earliest records of the ancient Germanic peoples, uh, that we see from Roman sources and into North Germanic sources later mm-hmm. and uh, all along the way in the continent and so forth. So uh, exactly what's something with this you know it's a really good question as to what activities would look like in a grove, right mm-hmm. We get um, some some stuff from early Roman records that raises questions as to whether it is some sort of projection or you know how much or the question is really how much of it is accurate right and how much are these? uh early authors uh just running with what they've heard and trying to interpret it off of what they know or what they may be familiar with or whatever stereotype they may have about other peoples right Mm -hmm. so a lot of questions there the archaeological record unfortunately also doesn't offer us a lot of answers about what uh ritual or just everyday veneration would look like uh at an ancient germanic grove because you know groves don't leave a ton of trace when they're gone, uh, unfortunately, particularly the more wild a grove might be. Now, there have been some studies that seem to indicate um, concentrations of things like glass beads uh, in what appears to have perhaps been a grove site. And then you get to a discussion about the grove reduced to the singular, the sacred tree, Uh, which seems to have also been a very common aspect of ancient Germanic religion. Mm -hmm. And then that, you know, leaves even less of a trace, you know, a single tree Mm -hmm. when it's gone, barring very unusual circumstances, it biodegrades pretty rapidly. So Mm -hmm. a lot of questions there. And that's uh, the ancient Germanic record for you. You (laughs) we, We can identify some things, but we can only go so far with it. And that said, you know, it's uh, far more than we have for most other peoples, uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, comparative data is is certainly strength, uh, but unfortunately we don't get a lot of that from neighboring peoples either. For example, Slavic peoples, uh, the record is very limited in comparison to the ancient Germanic record. Uh, Celtic peoples, same thing, very limited in comparison. Um, the Greek material has its own issues, same way with the uh, Roman material. You know, mm-hmm. there's lots of holes and gaps and very rarely do we get a very straightforward uh, picture of what was so long ago mm-hmm. uh, outside of the archaeological work which itself comes with a tremendous amount of difficulty and uh, questions. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: And yet somehow we're able to like uh, generalize this picture of what, what apples and apple trees are at least connected with, which is actually kind of amazing as far as the available topics.
1: Right, yeah, we can say a handful of things about it. Which to me is quite interesting, you know, the uh, iconography surrounding goddesses or particular goddesses and apples, mm-hmm. and uh, as a, the apple is a symbol. And then the apple is uh, some sort of uh, curative, also very interesting uh, in uh, Volsunga Saga. Mm-hmm. And there's charm, we see Odin prescribing the apple as a, uh, a curative. Uh, and then there's, uh, you know, the question of what's going on exactly with this apple comparison in perhaps an earlier version of a uh, Volsunga saga, saga or I should say the Volsunga cycle because mm-hmm. the saga itself is an extension of that broader complex right mm-hmm. uh, by all indications the uh, Volsunga cycle the complex of narratives around uh, these particular figures that are described in uh, the North Germanic Volsunga cycle saga rather mm-hmm is uh, seems to have been really well known by the ancient Germanic peoples broadly. You know, we have references to it in Beowulf. Uh, the uh, uh, Nibelungenlied lead um, also uh, presents a very courtly version of this narrative. Mm. We have uh, depictions of elements of it in um, stone, for example, in Scandinavia. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing is very, very interesting. Seems to have been very popular. And it also contains elements of ancient Germanic history mm. uh, from way, way back before the... Uh, Old Norse language had even developed. So the these narratives that are embedded in what we today know as the Volsung cycle, mm-hmm. uh, very, very interesting stuff. Now, this also brings up um, a really, you know, a point of fixation for a lot of scholars in the narrative. And there is a tree um, that plays a pretty major role in the cycle early on mm-hmm. uh, that Odin um, stabs with a blade during a wedding, right? So the place of this tree and this apple uh, is really central to the beginning of these narratives. They really set everything in motion. And in both cases, they are associated with Odin pretty strongly. Mm -hmm. Uh, The tree itself, um, its name seems to be renderable to child tree, child trunk, uh, the barn stalker, uh, Mm -hmm. the like, yeah, you know, uh, barn is in the uh, dialect uh, i think it's like Scots dialect mm-hmm. it can mean a uh, child also in like danish you know it's a whole uh, Germanic complex of this term um and the second element is clearly like tree right <laughs> and uh, it is referred to in the narrative both as um, an oak uh, but also as an apple tree right so this tree seems to play a really important role more broadly in the narrative but Especially the early parts of uh, Volsunga Saga are—they're very unclear as to what, where these layers have come from, and why they are being interpreted in, in the manner that they are by the um, individual or individuals who put together what we now today know as the Volsunga Saga. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, early on, there is a mention of what appears to uh, perhaps originally referred to Skadi, the goddess. Um, but is sort of personified, even euhemorized um, as a, uh, uh, an, an individual, right? And then later on, you know, this tree um, with this odd name comes out of nowhere. Uh, and then later an apple occurs. So was, did an earlier version of this narrative involve the tree producing apples mm-hmm. that had some influence on these individuals or entities, early on in this complex you know it's a good question but unfortunately we don't have a lot of comparative uh, right. data to draw from to draw mm-hmm. a, say a proto version of that narrative uh, with those elements anyway it's uh, interesting which, that
0: apples yeah. seem to have influence though like there is this sort of right. sense of apples emitting some kind of power of some kind right. like they have they have an effect it even makes me think of like bobbing for apples and apple divination. That's much, much later, at least, I mean, who knows how long it's been there, but, um, there's so much folklore around apples, especially at Halloween. Cause that's when they exist. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. The, the
1: harvest. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, and people use them in all kinds of ways to, to determine the future. And there's a sense of fadedness to that too.
1: Um, sure. Yeah. That's I really mean, interesting. <laughs> tremendous amount of folklore around the, uh, humble apple for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, fantastic fruit highly recommended (laughs) (laughs)
0: if you could generalize the the role of the apple in old norse texts and i mean germanic ancient germanic belief in general how would you do that
1: yeah okay so from the samples let's just say that from the particular narratives uh, and items that i'm drawing from in the ksd entry you know um Certainly you could probably do a broader survey of apples in the ancient Germanic record than what I've produced there. You know, it's a, it's a brief entry it sort of fills in uh, a gap that is missing from the, uh, common, uh, uh, handbooks on the topic that, uh, both, uh, general audience, uh, the general audience would use or, or say a, a scholar would use. And it fills in for that. But, um, I would say, at least in, for example, Norse myth and uh, some of the early references like uh, the Niner's Charm, there's a sort of potency associated with the apple uh, as a as a sort of curative that also associates it with sexuality. Um, and then there is an element where it's associated with where it's associated with death, right? So we see it in um, a particular burial, uh, a Viking age burial that contained two women in what is now Norway. And it's in a bucket. Right. So that doesn't tell us a whole lot, except that as a grave good, uh, an apple appears appears to have been acceptable, at least in that context. Right. Mm-hmm. And those apples were crab apples. Mm-hmm. Okay? So whatever they were doing with these crab apples, uh, that raises some interesting questions. But uh, I would say that, um, you know, when Michael Pollan discusses uh, the apple as this this Dionysian um, Uh, object that's associated with a sort of wildness, uh, a sort of strength and a a sort of uh, eroticism. I I think that is very much uh, what we see, at least in the Germanic record as well. You know, if you take those things together and you try to find a commonality, you can come up with a a little constellation of uh, semantic values in that sense. Uh, But um, to me, I would say definitely sex, uh, death, and uh, potency more broadly would fulfill what I picture being associated with the apples in the record and I think that does cover pretty much all the uh, <laughs> appearances of the apple in the ancient Germanic record at least in the examples that I've outlined
0: amazing thank you that was really concise I thought that was going to be impossible
1: <laughs> <laughs> well I'm glad i uh, glad to help <laughs>
0: yeah no problem thank you very much this has been very informative and i feel like there are many many more avenues for me and everyone else to explore with regard to the apple in sure. ancient germanic tradition and texts thank you so much for being here oh i have a question can you tell yeah. me. can you tell us where people can find your work because you're doing a few different projects and um, you have mimisbrunner and then dot info and you right. have also um, this series of essays or articles goddess unknown how, how can people find these things
1: sure yeah so if you go to uh the aforementioned site and um you just click my name anywhere you'll get a uh index of everything i'm working on uh including published material and and so forth
0: great i'll put that in the show notes then. uh the
1: next thing we're going to work on is some discussion about how we depict deities in the uh um uh, all over the site all of the project mm-hmm. because uh you know especially when you look at how gods, uh, are depicted by pop culture, you know, there's a specific set of motifs that they're drawing from when they do this mm-hmm. and, um, where they came from and why they are the way they are is a really interesting question. Uh, some of the feedback that I've gotten, for example, from the project and how we depict deities, you know, um, sometimes it's like, Hey, you know, these should be much wilder looking, you know? You're playing it too safe uh with these deities uh they are way too tame looking you know they're way too clothed they're way too um i should say uh basic looking in some regards right mm-hmm. and then on the other hand we get groups who are just like hey you guys are going too wild with these depictions of uh these gods and you know i think they should really be a lot more covered up and it's not very respectful and uh i think uh this this and that you know and You know, I understand where both of them are coming from because they are drawing from some sort of point of reference. They're drawing from some sort of depiction that they deemed to be appropriate and um, whatever that might be. Unfortunately, uh, the record as we know it, you know, there's no modern depiction that really draws specifically from the record. And um, in some cases, these gods appear to have been animals, you know, as they're described in the record, too, Mm -hmm. or animal-like entities. And we just don't see that uh, in modern popular depiction. So it's a kind of a, a new thing that we're doing with this and definitely something that uh, I think some people would find useful, especially artists, you know, mm-hmm. who are looking for points of references um, and, um, you know, some, just some ideas and sources of inspiration. Certainly not uh, prescriptive or anything like that, mm-hmm. but it's certainly worth uh, discussing and taking a look at. And that's where things like apples come in too. Mm-hmm. You know, that's part of the iconography around the uh, gods of the ancient Germanic peoples. You know, there are very specific symbols. There's uh, very specific motifs that we see. And uh, very rarely do they make it into uh, modern day depictions of these entities, Mm
2: -hmm. uh, which,
1: you know, I think that's fascinating. And uh, I'm sure that a lot of studios who are looking to produce films or or games, you know, um, would love to have such a resource. And uh, I myself, you know, when I do creative stuff, Would certainly like something like that too. So I think that'll be the next thing uh, that uh, I work on for the site.
0: Cool. What do gods look like?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know (laughs) how um, God shapes, you know, we, uh, myself and uh, Ross Downing, who uh, uh, is involved with the site as well, or the project, I should say, uh, we put together a um, series that we haven't really picked up since doing the first entry for. Mm -hmm. It's called uh, God Shapes. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first entry discusses uh, Huner, who is a um, deity in the record, kind of shadowy, but uh, plays some important roles, who appears to have been thought of as a bird-like entity, if not outright, some sort of bird. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that doesn't really fall in line with, say, Marvel depictions of uh, Norse stuff from Wagner, or even if you go to um, Scandinavia and you take a look at what's just in the popular culture, uh, in terms of how, you know, gods are depicted and you know, on that note, though, I should note that uh, goddesses like Freya definitely have a much uh, more visible presence in pop culture in uh, places like Denmark mm-hmm. than they do in the U.S. Uh, I'm not sure what that says about these uh, individual cultures, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, the line the lines of influence are, are certainly interesting there. Mm-hmm. You know, you get like Freya chocolates and like lingerie companies and stuff, you know, things that you would think would be associated with this particular, particular entity, mm-hmm. whereas... Um, in the US, for example, and I'm sure Canada is the same way, you know, this uh, particular once very well known deity has certainly all but disappeared from modern popular culture, despite the revival of uh, Norse myth as a commonplace everyday aspect of uh, modern popular culture in uh,
2: 2020.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's only Thor and Odin, as far yeah. as we know. <laughs> Thor, Odin. Never heard about anybody else. Maybe a Loki
0: uh, in there. So
1: yeah. yeah. You got to get to, of course, the heartthrob, the heartthrob Loki <laughs> that we have in uh, 2020. <laughs> Very popular these days. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. Well, stuff.
0: yeah, <laughs> I really look forward to, to hearing more about that and, and reading about it. And I will send, I will send everyone your way. After my interview with Joseph, I went to sleep and I woke up at 2am and these words were in my mind. So I wrote them down on paper, and I share them here with you. Each apple is a world. Each apple is an invitation to receive both what we know and what we don't know yet. The apple contains a beginning, the seed at its core, and the apple contains its end in the rotting that shortly takes place. It reminds us of our own potential, and our own inevitable loss. The apple suggests that we offer ourselves to both the known and the unknown. If there is a perfect time to do so, it is exactly when the trees are hung with fruit, and sweetness fills the air, and the edge of a chill is in the breeze, and the scent of death nips at the edges of everything. Apple season is a precipice. Will you take its invitation to your destiny? This is the Bothy Band. With a song comparing the love of a man to the love of an apple. Do you love an apple? Thank you so much for listening to my discussion with Joseph S. Hopkins. I enjoyed it so much, and I am so glad to be making connections with scholars of this kind, people who are committed to sharing quality information on the internet in a way that's accessible to everybody. So please visit mimisbrunner.info to see what you can find there. It's really incredible, and it's an unusual resource for being Totally unbiased and free and available and rather transparent in its aims. I really appreciate that. Thank you to the musicians who provided music for this episode. You can listen to them on Spotify to allow them to gain benefit from your listening. And thank you also to Sylvia Woods for her song Forest March, which is the opening theme to this episode. If you're interested in the Abundance Paganism course, even just learning more or signing up, please visit the sales page in the show notes for more information about that. I'm already so excited about the people who have joined. I can't wait to get started. Begins on September 2nd, and it runs for six weeks. And again, the sales page closes at 8 p.m. Pacific time, Sunday night, August 30th. I hope to see you there. You can also follow everything that I'm doing on Instagram at danica.voice. I'm very active there, and I'm always communicating about my new offerings and about podcast episodes as they become available. Thank you to my Patreon subscribers especially for sharing this episode with you because they usually have it all to themselves. Have a beautiful September. I hope you get to spend some time in the leaves and the fruits of a beautiful, scented, ancient apple tree this month. I'll talk to you soon.